the Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Joseph Cohen from the City University of New York. Today we have a very special treat, an episode I've been waiting to have happen. Two top-notch scholars on genocide to talk about the Bosnian War. We have past guest Aliza Luft from UCLA and special guest Adis Maksic from International Birch University in Sarajevo. Our discussion was recorded on November 7th, 2019. Okay, today we have a, a very special episode. Aliza Luft from UCLA. Aliza was a guest on season one of the Annex. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> and Adis Maksic from International Birch University in Sarajevo. Adis recently published Ethnic Mobilization, Violence and the Politics of Affect, the Serb Democratic Party and the Bosnian War with Palgrave Macmillan. Thank you very much for joining us, Adis. Thank you for inviting me, Joe. Great to be here. Now, I first caught sight of Adis's work on the uh, New Book Network's East European Studies podcast. It was hosted by, I think it was Jelena Golubovic. I hope I pronounced that right. That's about right, then. Is it close enough, at least? Close enough. <laughs> <laughs> An anthropology doctoral student from Simon Fraser University, and she did a wonderful job, and uh, I, I recommend looking it up. And uh, Adis has an incredible take on uh, the rise of ethnopolitics and sort of the, the dark past towards which it could lead. I found your interview just fascinating. His book studies the rise of the Serb Democratic Party, or the SDS, among Bosnian Serbs, and it explains how the SDS won votes by elevating the salience of ethnic identity and raising fear of ethnic outgroups as an electoral strategy. And that, that touched a nerve for me, because I feel like we've been getting sort of a low dose of that in American politics for uh, several years. And uh, Adis is, has a very, very special point of view on this. He came of age in Sarajevo during the war and was directly involved in it. He has an amazing story. I, you know, I'll just let you tell us about it, but I'm thrilled. So thank you for joining us. Do you want to start us off by telling us the story of Bosnia? Some of our listeners might not know much about Bosnia, might not know much about the war. Can you sort of set the stage for us? Well, if there is one word that comes to mind when it comes to the history of Bosnia, it is crossroads. And as you can imagine, that already suggests a pretty turbulent history, and it is pretty difficult to be brief about it, but I'll try. Uh -huh. uh, so the area of Bosnia has been inhabited since the Neolithic age, the term Bosnia for the first time being mentioned in the 10th century. And by the 12th century, we already have the emergence of the Banat of Bosnia, which was within the kingdom of Hungary. And this would later be uh, elevated into an independent kingdom. So uh, Bosnia existed as an independent state, as a kingdom in the Middle Ages. And even in the, at this time, it was religiously diverse. And I would even say pretty unique. Uh, they were Catholics. They were the Orthodox Christians. But must, much, probably the most of the population belonged to the so-called Bosnian church. And this Bosnian church was considered heretical by both the Vatican and the Byzantine rulers, so they were persecuted by both. Huh. 
So in, in the second half of the 15th century, Bosnia falls under the Ottoman influence, under the Ottoman Empire, and it would not emerge as an independent state again until 1992, which is five centuries later. So, and as you can imagine, it's a quite different society today. A lot had happened in between. Sure. Bosnian church disappeared. Most of its followers, or all of its followers, converted to Islam, but Bosnia continued to exist as a province within the Ottoman Empire. And this was a period of sharp religious differentiation within the Ottoman millage system, but it was also a period of relative peace and stability because there was an element of, you know, interreligious coexistence. Right. So during the 19th century, Serb ethno-national consciousness develops amongst Bosnians who, ha- who were Orthodox, of Orthodox population, and Croat national identity uh, developed among the Catholics. Mm. So religion here became as an axis of ethnogenesis. In 1878, we have Bosnia transferred from the Ottoman Empire to the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which rules uh, until World War I. And as many of our listeners will know, World War I was triggered in Bosnia by the Sarajevo assassination. Mm -hmm. And after World War I, Bosnia is incorporated into the first Yugoslavia, which was a state defined as a kingdom of Serbs, Croats, and Slovenes. And this was the period of, uh, for, uh, when, for the very first, for the very first time since since the Middle Ages, uh, Bosnia disappeared as a geopolitical unit. It became a point of contention of Serb and Croat ethnic politics, ethnopolitical rivalry, both of which laid claim to the Bosnian territory, and as they do until to the present day, as they have to the present day. So then. Uh, during World War II, the Kingdom of Yugoslavia is quickly overrun by the Nazis, mm. and Bosnia is absorbed into this fascist puppet state of uh, independent state of Croatia. Mm. So this period from 1941 to 1945 was very brief, but it was very important for what would happen later in 1992 and the, and the period that we are covering here and that I'm that I'm closely examining in my book. Uh, the reason why is because this was the period when numerous atro- ethnically motivated atrocities happened on the Bosnian territory. And I'm specifically thinking here of the genocidal killings of Serbs by the Croatian nationalist Ustaše movement, as well mm-hmm. as mass killings of Muslims and Croats by the Serb royalist Chetnik movement. So the revival of these collective memories uh, would be critical for descent to war in, 1990, in the 1990s and 1992, or you know, the creation of the fear that this, these events would happen again, and about which uh-huh. I talk about in my book to a very considerable extent. So... Bosnia sort of sits at the edge of three big civilizations. Like if you think of it like a Samuel Hunting thing, I guess, there's like the, it sits at the crossroads of Western Europe, the Arab world or the Muslim world, and sort of the, of Eastern Europe or the Orthodox Church. If if we use Huntington's, uh, Huntington's terminology, then yes, uh, it would be right. these civilizations you know, intersecting in Bosnia, and right. Bosnia is colloquially known as the border between East and the West, right. and being that when the Roman Empire split into East and the West, it happened along the Drina River, which is a river between Bosnia and, and Serbia. Ah, okay. And then what happened was the during World War II, the Croats collaborated with the Nazis and that sort of sat in the cultural memory and was remobilized when Yugoslavia was falling apart in the 90s, is what you're saying. 
Yes, and this resulted to develop in the creation of this independent state of Croatia, mm. fascist state, resulted in mass killings of, of Serbs in geno- of genocidal proportions. And, but also there were various military units in the area at, at, at certain times collaborating with the Nazis, at other times fighting against the Nazis. And one of them was the Royalist Chetnik movement that committed a lot of atrocities against Muslims and some atrocities against Croats as well. So if we look at it from the standpoint of ethnic groups, so-called, uh, all ethnic politics could claim victimization stemming from World War II. Okay. So, Adis, you lived in Bosnia around the time of the war, right? You you grew up there. Tell us a little bit about, you know, your childhood. What was it like? And, uh, you know, what was it like when Yugoslav society was disintegrating? Uh, well, I can maybe begin talking about what it was like during Yugoslavia and how that changed during the process yeah. of, of disintegration. Uh, and I can approach this question, as you mentioned, both from the standpoint of a scholar and from some personal experience, because having been raised in Sarajevo in the 1980s and, and during Yugoslavia, Sarajevo was a bastion of Yugoslav brotherhood and unity. It was mm. a capital of Bosnia and Bosnia was colloquially known as mini Yugoslavia uh, and probably most Yugoslav of all the republics. And what I think hasn't been stated enough is that Yugoslavia was for the people here at least in Bosnia, at least, at least in urban Bosnia, more than a state. It was an identity. It was something that was felt very deeply and very emotionally. And so the decades of the Yugoslav experience were you know, not only reducing the political importance of ethnicity, but also having much more deeper social effects in the sense that people were Muslim, Serbs, Croats were dressing more alike, they were listening to the same music, they already spoke the same language, then there are the intermarriages, you know, mm. upwards of 50% of, of, of marriages in urban cities in the early 80s, Wow, having mixed ethnic backgrounds, uh, spouses having mixed ethnic backgrounds. So, uh, and then you have the problem of how do you define the ethnicity of generations born out of these marriages? Mm. Then there is the mixed ethnic geography. You know, we had some uh, mono-ethnic villages, we had some mixed villages, but most small towns, cities were ethnically mixed all the way down to apartment buildings. Mm. So how do you split that up? How do you divide that society uh, along ethnic lines, along ethno-territorial lines? So by the time I was growing up in Sarajevo, all these processes reached the extent at which I had no idea of any differentiation between me and my classmates or my friends who were of, of different ethnic backgrounds. Now mm. I can identify them as Serbs, Croats, or Bosniaks retrospectively, but back in the day it meant absolutely nothing. Mm. And I don't want to romanticize this time. Obviously, uh, most Bosnians were aware of their ethnic backgrounds, and these processes that I'm talking about didn't go pro-Yugoslav sentiments, didn't develop as deeply in in more rural areas, or uh, they di- it didn't go as smoothly in these mono-ethnic villages. Mm. So ultimately, some resources have had to remain in order for these nationalist movements to succeed in the 1990s. But these social realities have to be appreciated more. The Yugoslav national consciousness was real, and it was not any any less real, not not any less intense as these ethnic identities are today. 
So you had really sort of like what we would, would imagine as as a, a progressive society or an advanced society. It became sort of or it had gone beyond sort of old ethnocentric type of rivalries. There was like a pan-humanism, lots of integration. And often when we think of that, we imagine that as an end state that we move to and never come back from. But your work suggests that you can get pulled back from the brink. Like multiculturalism is an ongoing project that can be taken apart. It can be. I have some clarifying questions. So when you speak about ethnicity before the war... You said that it was difficult to tell who was who, and also that there's 50% intermarriage in the 80s. And you made this sort of comment that, you know, the descendants of those intermarriages, the children produce those intermarriages, you didn't know who they were either. I was wondering if you could just clarify or speak a bit more to that. Um, So was ethnicity understood as an essential category, uh, which is to say that like it was something innate to who people were so that when people were intermarrying, they understood themselves as people from two different groups coming together and producing an offspring that was some sort of combination of that. And then was ethnicity considered to be matrilineal or patrilineal? Or was it genuinely just understood as like, these are practices, people are getting married, we raise our kids however we want, they might be raised with zero traditions from either group, or with the traditions of one and not the other, like, was it very fluid? Or was it understood to be a fixed part of someone's identity, even if it wasn't significant for politics? It was understood as a pretty important part of someone's identity. But it wasn't, those ethnic sentiments were not important enough to overrule these pro-Yugoslav sentiments that, that were developing. Got it. And now we can here talk about two Bosnias. We can talk about, you know, Bosnia of the cities, such as Sarajevo, such as Tuzla. We can talk about more rural Bosnia, which uh, largely mm-hmm. retain their mono-ethnic character. When we're mm-hmm. talking about whether it's patrilinear or matrilinear, it's patrilinear, but uh, th- that was the understanding. Uh, uh, but at the same time, you had a whole generation of Bosnians living in urban areas who would give names to their children based on a whole new category of names that was emerging called Yugoslav names. Mm-hmm. See, naming practices were very important for distinguishing between right. Serb, Croats, and Bosniaks because the three groups were so culturally close to one mm-hmm. another. So, had so many, many cultural commonalities that the symbols that would differentiate them would be the, the naming practices. So mm-hmm. hence, in the late 1980s, we, we had, at the time when, the, when nationalist parties emerged and when nationalism was resurfacing, uh, at that time we had those cliches, you know, they were criticizing, they were criti- uh, the nationalists were criticizing the Bosnian population that was not giving them support as Bosniaks only in name or Mm -hmm. Serbs only in name or Croats Mm -hmm. only in name. But even that was going out of fashion with the emergence of all these kind of Yugoslav names such as Damir, such as Vanya, such as, Mm -hmm. I can name name a few others as well. Thank you. That's very helpful. Thank you. And then, so the the country disintegrates in, uh, like what was happening big picture? when uh, Yugoslavia was disintegrated. Can you sort of, just for those of us who don't know much about the war, that that period. The story of the collapse of Yugoslavia. Yes, just very quickly, yeah. Okay, it is is very difficult to kind of 
it's it's arbitrary to decide where to begin the story. Right. You know, it's a very complex story. So we can identify several factors. One of them was economic crisis in Yugoslavia in the 1980s. High levels of inflation, which triggered the demands from one of the republics, Slovenia, which was the most developed of all republics, for economic independence. Or, in other words, for reduction of its financial obligations to the federation, to the central authorities. In the Yugoslav context, any such demands were immediately linked to the different versions of how Yugoslavia should be set up, and ultimately were linked to ethnic politics that were sort of simmering underneath. Serbs, as the relative majority in Yugoslavia, advocated a more centralized system. Croats and and Slovenians envisioned a much more loose union of the republics. So the initial line of conflict, so to speak, was between the, the party organizations, the communist party organizations of Serbia and Slovenia. At the same time, there was a great deal of dissatisfaction in Serbia about the this deep level of autonomy that its province of Kosovo, which was seen by many Serbs as the cradle of Serbdom, uh, was given in the 1974 constitution. So this was the context within which Slobodan Milosevic emerged and any as the undisputed le- leader of the League of Communists of Serbia, and any story of the collapse of Yugoslavia cannot skip the role of Slobodan Milosevic. And his rise was due to his ability to link to popular grievances, to portray himself as as the savior who would not only reinstate control of Kosovo, the control of Belgrade, the capital of Serbia, where Serbian institutions were headquartered, but also improve the status of Serbs in Croatia and also deal a massive blow to to all forms of separatism. So initially he would gain support with this agenda uh, at least the, what he expressed as his agenda at the time, he would gain support of many non-Serbs. So, for example, my father, who was uh, a very committed Yugoslav, he looked at Milosevic initially and described him as a really strong and powerful leader, mm. uh, someone that we need in order to save Yugoslavia. Mm. The problem is that he deviated from the Yugoslav communist traditional way of doing things. He found culprits for the economic situation in other Yugoslav nations. He he also disrupted the Republican balance, but he managed to install his loyalists into leadership positions in Montenegro, in the Serbian provinces of Kosovo and Vojvodina. And as a result, he managed to control four out of eight seats in the Yugoslav presidency, which was a process so-called anti-bureaucratic revolution. And as you can imagine, Yugoslavia had a formula for its existence, and this disrupted that formula. And the backlash over these moves grew in Slovenia and Croatia. Their populations radicalized. And when the first multi-party elections were held in 1990 in Croatia, they were won by the Croatian nationalist HDZ party under the leadership of Franjo Tuđman. That party won a relative majority of votes. And I believe this was the point after which it's pretty difficult to imagine that Yugoslavia could have been saved. And the reason why is not because, you know, Milo, not so much because Milosevic and Tuđman, these guys pulling into different directions, were in power now, but because they were in a way also partners. They legitimized one another. Huh. You know, so it kind of led to a spiral of, of radicalization that eventually culminated in armed mobilization and violence. Huh. So... The leaders of Serbia and Croatia relied on each other stoking nationalism within their borders to legitimize their own 
politic, uh, their own strategy for securing power in their own countries. I will briefly mention again what I talked about in, in the answer to your first question about history and the events that happened in World War II. Hmm. Under Milosevic and under Tujman, World War II terminology was reintroduced. So hmm. here comes Milosevic or Serbian media describing what was happening in Croatia as the resurgence of the Ustaše, which, if you recall, had committed these genocidal killings of Serbs in World War II. Uh, and vice versa, the Milosevic's reign was described in Croatia as the return of the Chetniks. Okay, so you just said a couple of things, and one of them was, um, you know, Milosevic and Tuchman won the relative majority in their elections, and he said that the population's radicalized. So uh, my first question is, what happened to the moderates? You know, they won a relative majority. So how relative was that majority and what happened to moderate voices? And I'll, I'll ask my follow-up question afterwards. But um, first, I'm just curious about the other political actors, um, the agendas that they were promoting, particularly given what you said in your other podcast, not this one, but it relates to what you said, that nationalism was so stigmatized in the past. Okay. In Serbia, Milosevic ended up winning with absolute majority. Mm -hmm. In Croatia, HDZ or HDZ under Franjo Tuđman won with relative majority with Franjo Tuđman getting something along, I believe, 41.9% of votes. And the moderates, if that would be the name for them, uh, the Croatian communists, their leader, Ivica Račan, won 35%. So, yeah, yeah it, was, it was a relatively close race, much closer than than uh, how people perceive it now with this distance, you know, kind mm -hmm. of, they are looking at what happened in 1990, oh, look at all these Croatians just kind of united be behind right. Tujman. But that happened later. Mm -hmm. That happened later with as these ethnicizing processes progressed, as this rivalry progressed. The a key aspect here was that in Croatia, due to the electoral system, mm -hmm. those 41% of the votes, mm -hmm. those 40-something percent won by, by HDZ, was transferred into 58% in the Croatian parliament mm -hmm. due to the electoral, uh, electoral system. So uh, that we have a party that won a, a relative majority, actually having absolute majority, able to pass laws, and cr which created a... Uh, a lot of backlash amongst the Croatian Serb population. They started organizing roadblocks, started developing right. their own autonomous regions within uh, Croatia, tried to disrupt the control of the central Croatian government. So those tensions that happened in Croatia already in, in, in uh, the summer of 1990 had a huge spillover effect for Bosnia, which would hold elections only a few months later. And they were also legitimized Milosevic's policies and create that affective charge, which ultimately leads to, you know, greater and greater polarization along, along ethnic lines. Mm -hmm. So then my follow-up question, and this is so helpful, so thank you for clarifying it. My follow-up question is that um, the way you describe it, it sort of goes in one direction only. There's increasing polarization. These people win with like a, you know, at least in Croatia, a slim majority, but then it becomes dominant within the government. And you mentioned how uh, World War II terminology was reintroduced. So my follow-up question is, was there resistance to this? Because um, certainly, you know, I was 
tabulating it, you have like 50 years after World War II, you have some people who lived through it, some people who were raised on the stories about it, some people who had experience, direct experience, some who had none at all. I can imagine that there was variation in how people responded to this terminology and that it didn't radicalize everybody in the same way. So I was wondering if you could tell us if there were if there was resistance or what happened to resistance um, or was there none? It's important how these political agenda were framed. Mm-hmm. And when in the processes that uh, ended with Milosevic gra- grasping power in Serbia, during those processes, we had many different mass gatherings of Milosevic's supporters waving U- Yugoslav flags, framing it as a support for preservation of Yugoslavia, that Yugoslavia is in danger, that we need to have, have a much more centralized system. So... Mm-hmm. We have a dimension of ethnic politics that was brewing underneath throughout the Yugoslav times. Mm-hmm. And th- those ethnic politics would take the lines of, you know, Serbo-Croat ethnic rivalry in the sense that Serb party organization demanded a much more centralized state while the Croatian one demanded uh, a, a much looser one. And then in 1974, Yugoslav con- constitution is adopted that essentially gives state-like powers to Yugoslav republics. And Serbs being the, the largest of the Yugoslav nations with the most people outside of the border of Serbia, the, there was a lot of discontent about this much looser union because it would, it would distance them from what they would consider the parent body or the Matica Serbia. Mm-hmm. So what I'm trying to cover in my book, what I was trying to cover in my book, the effects it had on Bosnia. Bosnia mm-hmm. was kind of standing on the sidelines there. Bosnia mm-hmm. being the, the most Yugoslav of all republics, the processes that led to this escalation, this radicalization, this whole ethnic spiral that were happening outside of Bosnia would orient the thinking of Bosnians in the direction about, okay, who are we? Whom do we support? And suddenly that that uh, ethnic identity that was so low in Bosnia as a result of all these processes started to become much more politically important. And I, in my book, I interviewed, I would say, uh, almost the half of the main board of SDS, the Serb party. And nearly unanimously, they agreed that they would have much less success in Bosnia in homogenizing Serbs had Tujman not won in Croatia prior Mm -hmm. to this. Mm -hmm. So these were mutually reinforcing processes. Uh, One last follow-up question. (laughs) So, you know, you spoke about this urban and rural divide, and there were much higher rates of intermarriage in urban areas than in rural areas. And uh, so that leads me to think of two questions. One is, um, how much power did the rural areas have to sort of shape these political outcomes, uh, if you could tell us a bit more about what voting was like. And this is an embarrassing question because I don't know the answer to it. Well, I guess whatever, not embarrassing. People don't know answers to all questions. But you're talking about intermarriage. Did women have the right to vote? The women did have the right to vote. So I'll start with the second question. So when we speak about ethnicizing processes and people coming to identify more and more, were were there splits within families? in terms, yeah, I, I just, I don't know if we can speak to the micro level in this way, but I'm curious. I, I don't know if it, if it helps me. I don't know if it's a paradigmatic example, but I can start with my own family. Mm-hmm. My grandparents all voted for 
the Nationalist Party, for the Bosniak Nationalist Party in 1990. My <laughs> parents voted for either reform, reformist or communist non-nationalist parties. <laughs> so there is a difference, there is a generational difference here. Also, the, the generation born in rural areas during, <laughs> or, during or prior to World War II, right. Ha having those atrocities in li their lived memories, mm -hmm. as opposed to the generation born in the 50s, 60s, right. in Sarajevo, in the bastion of brotherhood and unity. So mm -hmm. that going back to your question about the importance of rural areas, they are very important. Much of Bosnia is rural. Mm -hmm. And they are also important because these people were not heard much during the communist times uh, mm -hmm. in the political sense, mm -hmm. but national parties, as they organized in the 1990s, they were able to mobilize this thousands of these silent voters. Right. And even up until today, that is one of their advantages here in Bosnia in the sense that they are able to mobilize them to such an extent that uh, the entire village lines up at eight o'clock in the morning waiting for the polling booth to open. So you have the mm -hmm. paradox here in Bosnia that there is a higher turnout in, the, in rural areas than urban areas. Mm -hmm. huh. Thank you. You're welcome. So you talk about this ethnicizing process. Can you flesh that out? Like, what does it look like? What do you What do you do when you're trying to ethnicize uh, a population? What do you look when you try to ethnicize the population? Yeah, what does it look like? Like, uh, how could we identify it? Let's say, how could we identify if something similar were happening in another country or here? Like, what does it look like, the process? It is about a worldview. It is about perceptions. It is about a narrative. It's about discourse. It is a particular version about what a primary identity is and what a primary identity should be. We have all multiple identities or my, multiple axes of collective identification. We may have it along ethnic lines, we may have Yugoslav, maybe religious lines, maybe regional ones. When ethno-national parties came, they tried to create a perception that, or they advocated a position that ethno-national identity is your real identity, this is something you're born with. This is how mm -hmm. ethnic identities would kind of be differentiated from other forms of identity because they are based on descent. It's something that you just acquire by virtue of being born into a certain community. If you turn your back away from your ethnic community, you have done something against the nature, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. And then Ethnicization processes are about many different activities that are organized. National parties, when when they came to the scene, it wasn't just political parties. They also organized cultural societies. They also organized uh, you know, concerts, ethnic concerts, ethnic dances. And they tried to have as many activities as possible that would remind the people of their ethnic background. And... The more intense the feelings of ethnic belonging, the more like the greater likelihood that you will unite behind the leadership of your ethnic party in the time when the country is collapsing, when which is causing, you know, a lot of, a lot of anxieties and uncertainties, and obviously uh, security concerns as well. You got some to add to that, Elisa? Yeah, because uh, I, you know, think about this stuff obsessively, and so <laughs> I have three questions. One is. 
I wonder if you can explain a bit why ethnicizing practices or top-down ethnicizing practices resonate in some cases and not others. Mm. And then my follow-up is why they might resonate for some people and not others, because not everybody just buys into this framing, right? There's an ethnicizing framing process. You talk about um, the master frame, but certainly there's always people who don't participate in violence or who don't align with the party or who don't become extremists. And there are some people who even respond to it with resistance. So I was wondering if you could explain perhaps that, you know, you talk a lot about these top-down processes, but maybe from your understanding and your experience, the bottom-up aspect. Um, And then I have a question about cognition, which I know you speak a little bit about in your book, but I'll I'll wait, hold off on that for after. Okay, uh, I'll start off by uh, pointing out some of the factors that allow these nationalist narratives to succeed or to sort of stick with the Bosnian population. Mm-hmm. And so why do they succeed? In the Bosnian case, it is one is contextual, contextual factor. And that is that it was successful because Bosnia was part of Yugoslavia and Yugoslavia was collapsing along ethnic lines. So it, this nationalist wave was inevitable to sweep into Bosnia. Bosnia is sandwiched between the two republics, between Serbia and Croatia. And it is also targeted by Serbian and Croatian at the national claims. And so the context forced, forced Bosnians to orient their thinking and orient their sol- so solidarities. And I always say, and this may be unusual, that it is a bit misleading to say that Bosnia seceded from Yugoslavia, as, in, as counterintuitive as it may, may seem. Because as the republic in which the population was most loyal to the idea of Yugoslavia of all the republics, we have, it was the most loyal precisely because they were ethnically diverse and because there was not one dominant ethnicity and Yugoslavia provided a framework for the function of such a society. But this framework collapsed due to developments in other republics. So when Bosnia government declared independent, Croatia and Slovenia had already left. And what remained was not the Yugoslav Federation. So the question opens up, what do you do? Mm-hmm. And most Bosnian Serbs went into the direction of solidarity with Serbia and trying to remain in union with Serbia. And so what remained out of the country was not a Yugoslavia. It was a, a rump state, only in name Yugoslavia. So the question would be, you know, can you really say that Bosnia seceded from a state that didn't really exist? And another reason would be the weight of heavy and difficult history. Mm -hmm. Can it succeed in other cases? Well, it may, it may not, but history here plays a role. And it doesn't play a role in any automatic sense. It doesn't mean that somehow automatically, because there were atrocities in the past, boom, it will happen again. But what it does is it gives resources for national parties. It gives resources to point to historical events and map them onto the contemporary context. So the events that happened between 1941 and 1945 would be mapped onto the interpretations of events in 1992 to say that the political moment of 1992 is the same as the political moment in 1942. Mm-hmm. As if those 50 years of Yugoslavia were somehow deceiving, somehow irrelevant, and somehow didn't matter. Mm-hmm. So this was... this not historical continuity in any direct sense, but the production of a perception that there was historical continuity between the two political moments 
was a very powerful resource. Obviously, what happened in World War II was horrible. And if you can successfully mobilize these memories, you're able to produce anxieties and you are able to uh, produce a situation in which people look for their ethnic kin, so to speak, mm-hmm. for safety. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this was very important for a multi-ethnic society like Bosnia, which this, with this diverse ethnic geography, because it meant that you either migrate to areas in which there is a higher concentration of, your, of people of your, your same ethnic background, mm-hmm. or you have a tendency to legitimize expulsion if you mm-hmm. have territorial control, expansion of those others, of the ethnic other. So I'll leave aside my cognition question for now. I, there's so many interesting parallels with the kind of work I do in Rwanda and also in the Holocaust. You know, in some areas of Rwanda, you had 70% intermarriage, right? And you had a lot of people, at least the work that I look that, that I do looks at behavioral variation in genocides. So you had people who very much resisted extremist ideology, but participated in the genocide anyway for um, complicated reasons that I identify in my research. But one of those reasons is that people would participate sometimes to save others with whom they were close. And this, you know, I know a bit about the Bosnian case, but, and I I guess I'm harping on this intermarriage thing because I think it forces us to ask non-obvious questions. Um, And so one of those is when you say things like people would align with their ethnic category, they found safety and security, Did families split up? Did people say to their spouses, to their partners, I don't trust you anymore because you're a member of this category and I'm a member of this category. And even though we've loved each other and raised a family with each other and have children Mm -hmm. together, sorry, you know, or um, yeah. So I guess that when I try and challenge my own work, I try and think about it really at that very intimate level of what this looked like in practice and everyday life as communities that were not divided became divided and how that happened. Okay. I would say that there are two ways to answer the question or the two two different factors involved here. One is that patriarchal line, that patriarchal tradition mm-hmm. in which sort of a, a female spouse uh, kind of submits to the authority of a man mm-hmm. and here we see if you have a serb a serb husband and a muslim wife or a bosniak wife mm-hmm. uh, that would result in a bosniak wife going along with whatever the husband chose whichever direction husband chose that happened in some cases but much more frequently when it came to intermarriages they mm-hmm. were resistant to any divisions in in the ethnic politics. Many of them Mm -hmm. would simply leave, Mm -hmm. or many of them would uh, support Bosnian statehood, because what what, what is very important here to distinguish is that Serb ethnic politics were very much ethnic, while Mm -hmm. Bosniak ethnic politics were mixed into the story of a Bosniak civic state or Bosnian civic state. So we had a situation, for example, at the beginning of the war when you had the warring sides. They didn't conform to ethnic lines. You had a a Serb army, and on the other side, you had a a multi-ethnic Bosnian army, which was majority Muslim, but there were many, 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 many non-Muslims in that army. So Mm -hmm. the whole idea of... uh, a civic Bosnian state that would accommodate all ethnicities kind of suited the people right. who were in mixed marriages. Right. And then there are many who left. So I don't know if many cases were actually 
families or marriages split up along ethnic lines. I don't know a single mm-hmm. one. So mm-hmm. it's either a, a wife going along with whatever husband chose or mm-hmm. staying on the, on the Bosnian government side, which was trying to accommodate this diversity through the whole concept of the secular and, and civic Bosnian state. Thank you. I have a question for both of you. Is the difference that the ethnic cleansers were using different strategies? Like in the Bosnian case, they were relying on the army, whereas in the Rwandan case, it seems like they were trying to mobilize people to do it, uh, do their work at a grassroots level. Is it? Is it like? Is it one of those things where there's a puppet master who decides, or? Were there fundamental differences in the society that you could look to to say, I understand why families would, you know, people would turn on each other more readily in violence in Rwanda, whereas they do it through an army in in Bosnia? The families didn't turn on each other very easily. And there was the Rwandan military and uh, militia went from town to town, mobilizing the population Uh and threatening them and engaging in all these other practices to coerce people into participation Um, and, and not just, you know, through the typical obedience to authority explanation, but for, you know, monetary and other ways as well. So it was very much a top-down directed process to mobilize civilians into violence. Um, it wasn't, you know, a sudden outburst of civilian response to top-down narrative, but um, mm. actual, like, very interactive process. I'll maybe use here a story of a person I interviewed for my book, whose father was murdered at the beginning of the war in 1992. And he lived in a village near Priedor, which is in northwest Bosnia, uh, which an area that suffered, ho- suffered horribly. And I asked him when these Serb forces, when they entered the town, were they all doing the killings? Mm. And he said that, one, his face was red in shame. And... Another one was indifferent, and the third one was doing the killings. Mm-hmm. So it is not the ethnic masses that hum- somehow spontaneously start the killings. Right. It is uh, very narrow segments of the populations. It mm-hmm. is very specific military units, very right. specific individuals. The problem is when you have masses that stand by and, right. and they... Mm-hmm. They are indifferent. I think the, the 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 problem, the challenge here is for us is not so much to understand how Serbs kill Muslims, but how majority of Serbs and majority or Muslims or whoever the ethnicity is, it's in certain conditions become indifferent. I think that's such an important point, and I'm glad you made it. <laughs> it reminds me of uh, Victor Frankl's book when he talks about how there were Nazi guards who were trying to ease the burdens of some of the people. And there were capos who just relished in the brutality of it. So mm-hmm. I guess it's true. You don't want to generalize broadly. In addition to that, you know, this is something I'm working on now, but a lot of people um, participate in violence unwillingly at first, and then they grow accustomed to it, and then it becomes easier, and then maybe they become willing participants. So I know that oh. Aris pays a lot of attention to timing in his work, which is something that I appreciate a lot about it. And the reasons why one person might participate in violence or stand by in the beginning of a war could be very different from the reasons why someone participates or stands by later. And on the flip side of that, someone can participate at one point and resist at a later point, or someone can be a bystander at one point and resist later or participate later. So there's a lot, you know, people are reacting to a very complex situation on the ground and a very scary situation on the ground. And elites 
play a really big role in shaping how people interpret that. But simultaneously, um, you know, people respond to those elites differently based on their own experiences before and during the war as well. And I, I very much appreciate that you're sensitive to these dynamics in your book. I think that whole transition from ethnic politics to ethnically motivated violence is also very important because mm-hmm. violence brings a whole new set of factors. Exactly. Like ethnic politics isn't always just result in violence. And, you know, I know Joe wants to talk about contemporary um, dynamics in the United States, but I think that's an important thing to say. Like there can be ethnicization of politics without mm-hmm. mass killing. Mm-hmm. Right. The people, there's a difference between severe social divisions or inequality or disaffection or frustration and actually killing another human being. <laughs> but there's like a, an Overton window or a, a pushing the envelope thing where I think I, I get the sense that politicians understand that they might be stirring the pot a little and little by little, like they, they stir up the pot more and they know they're incurring some type of risk of conflict, or at least that was my impression. But I would, I would also say that in the case of the Bosnian war, there was very little spontaneous about the eruption of that uh, of the war. Mm-hmm. You had, in 1991, there was already major fighting going on and atrocities in, in Croatia. And there were incidents of violence, of spontaneous violence, in which some Serbs killed some Muslims, a couple of Muslims in, in the summer of 1991. Then those incidents would continue later in 1991 and into early 1992. And they never amounted to you know, any widespread violence that would turn into a war eventually. Hmm. War happened exactly when... Bosnia's declaration of independence in April of 1992 was started to receive international recognition. Mm. So it was a continuation of politics. Mm-hmm. You know, von Klausewitz made that statement and it really rings true in this case. Mm-hmm. There were negotiations that were being done in early 1992. And SDS, the Serb party, they it established a firm control over much of Bosnian territory. It threatened that it would, you know, carve out a statelet that would then just split from Bosnia in order to gain an advantage in negotiations. However, in, in order to prevent Bosnian independence, recognition of Bosnia's independence. Once all these efforts failed, this is when widespread violence began. So there is a level of in- instrumentalization here in the sense that you have different areas under the control, the Serb-majority areas under the control of the Serb party. And in April of 1992, they launch attacks to unite these areas and cleanse non-Serbs from many mixed areas in order to create a functional statelet that would then be either joined to Serbia or exist in, uh, independent of the central Bosnian government. So just a note for the listeners, Aliza had to uh, leave us. So it's just me and Adis uh, moving forward. Adis, can you explain what it looked like on the ground, like the disintegration of Yugoslavia and sort of the descent into, into conflict and genocide? Like, how did it look? How did it feel when you're there on the ground? Uh, it's, well, we in Sarajevo, we felt a, a very great deal of resistance to the divisions. Hmm. So in early 1992, we had first checkpoints by armed gunmen that were trying to uh, disrupt the daily flow of life in Sarajevo. 
people would come out on the streets, you know, thousands of them, to protest these events and to to demand a peaceful resolution, these unarmed protesters. Mm. And so they would, you know, hold hands and sing songs and approach these checkpoints and succeed in removing some of them. Mm-hmm. And then at one point, they would reach a checkpoint at which the gunmen behind would open fire on unarmed mm-hmm. pro- protesters. And, you know, that ended those types of events, those types of attempts by ordinary people to, to prevent ethnic divisions, to kind of mm-hmm. prevent, prevent this descent into the violence. So it became clear that this was not the way. So protests then gave way to armed mobilization. Mm. In this is experience in Sarajevo and some other urban areas. In more rural, traditionally more ethnic areas, there was a great deal of fear because anyone became a potential target, you know, not by any choice that they made by but by markers of their ethnicity, mm. such as their names, which was the most obvious one. So there was no escape from it. Naturally, pe- people tended to migrate to areas where there was a higher concentration of people of their ethnicity, right? So to answer what people were feeling and thinking, perhaps I can say war was hell. And yeah. and they were thinking of biological survival first and foremost, and then everything else after that. Can you tell us what happened to you uh, during that ter- period? Okay, so in April of 1992, Sarajevo comes under siege. It is being shelled from the surrounding hills. Mm. And... My building, the apartment building in which I lived, uh, actually, from which I'm talking to you right now, huh. uh, it ended up being on the first front line. It ended yeah. up being shelled on a daily basis. And I managed to, my, my family decided to escape deeper into town away from the front line. Hmm. And we ended up going to some family member's house uh, and staying there for a few months. And there was a shell that exploded there that hmm. killed several people and in a crowd in which we were, my mother and I were in. My mother was severely wounded, ended up being handicapped, and I was much, uh, you know, I was wounded, but not, not that severely. And oh. then for the next year and a half, we lived in a hospital. Hmm. We lived in a hospital because my mother used to work in a pediatric hospital prior to the war, and our... Hmm apartment as i mentioned earlier was at the front line so the manager of the pediatric hospital gave my mother and i a room in the hospital and we stayed there and my father would come to visit us and in the hospital from time to time at one of these times a shell hit a hospital and he ended up being wounded and stayed with us but because of my mother's condition we ended up being after about a, a year or so we ended up uh, being evacuated by the United Nations and oh. for my mother's treatment and a hospital that was our sponsor was in Michigan in the U.S. And this oh. is how we ended up in the U.S. So you sought asylum. You were a refugee who came to the United States. Actually, we came to the U.S. on a tourist visa, huh. believe it or not. It was a U.N. program evacuating huh. severely wounded from Bosnia, but we were on a tourist visa. Mm-hmm. And uh, once that visa expired, the war still waged. We applied for asylum and uh, received asylum and eventually became uh, Americans. <laughs> Amazing. It's an incredible story. So, Yelena Golubovic, 
when she was inter- interviewing you for new books, she talked about how your account differs from the idea that ethnic animus is like bottled up and unleashed. Like uh, uh, one of the core thrusts of your book is is to combat that idea that there's always uh, ethnic mm-hmm. animus simmering and controlled and waiting to yes. be released. Ed, can you can you tell us a little bit more about that view? Ethnic hatreds are not brewing underneath, and not at least not in any. S- general sense. Mm -hmm. The Yugoslav experience that I talked about, the reason why I talked about it is is to illustrate the sentiments that people felt at that time. Now, retrospectively, people can sometimes confuse cause and effect and say, well, that was all a lie. But usually, even then, they would say it all unraveled because others betrayed us. Mm. You know, Muslim would say that Serbs or Croats betrayed and or vice versa. And they would never bring into question their own sentiments that they felt at the time. Mm. Uh, What was brewing underneath were the narratives. Mm. Narratives. The way people talked about the society, the way people talked about identities, the way the people that talked about history. Mm. That came later with as the Yugoslav party state collapsed, as the Yugoslav communist state collapsed, as these national movements started to emerge, these narratives burst to the scene, not hatreds. Mm. Not animosities, but these narratives. Mm. Certainly some segments of the population perhaps had those animosities all along. And Mm. some of them would organize these political parties. But we shouldn't underestimate the level of their agency in the production of sentiments, in the production of animosities that didn't exist prior to their, Mm. their emergence. So it's not that I'm saying it's only a top-down story. Of course, it's, it has a top-down dimension and a bottom-up dimension, but we have to mm. find the right shade of gray, if you will, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. rather than look at, it, look at it as black and white, top, down, top or down. Mm. And that shade of gray will vary from a case to a case. In the Bosnian case, that shade of gray tells us that the agency of political parties was critical. It was crucial. Mm. I, have, I did some research for in some other cases, such as ethnic mobilization in Georgia, the Republic of Georgia. Mm. And the story is quite different. During the Soviet times, there was a very powerful uh, movement of dissent amongst the Georgians mm. and protests that would, be, that would end in crackdown. And the Soviet state did not have nearly as much legitimacy in Georgia as the Yugoslav state had in Bosnia. So Mm. in that situation, you see national identity brewing underneath, waiting to erupt, and the bottom-up story is much more compelling than in the Bosnian Mm. case. So we have to look at specific cases to to really find what was the content of their nationalisms, what was the content of their nationalist nationalist Mm. mobilization, and that will vary. And then, uh, okay, I have uh, two more questions. The, f- the first one is, before the show, we were talking about emotions, and you were mentioning that you're very interested in them. Can you just give us a sense of, uh, you know, what, do you, what are your thoughts on, on the role of emotions? Why are you so interested in it? Well, in recent years, for the last past, maybe past two decades, there has emerged a whole wealth of literature in the field of neuroscience that sort of challenges that binary of reason versus emotions. Mm-hmm. Reason and, mo- and emotions are very much interconnected. Emotions, in a way, so to speak, tends to find its own rationality or its own reason. Mm. And 
when trying to understand the processes that happened at the time of the collapse of Yugoslavia, when trying to understand what changed, that literature suggests that the path to answers is trying to understand how affects and how sensibilities of people changed. How at one point they feel this strong, intense, affectively felt Yugoslav identity and that unravels. And I start the book with a preface in which I use the example of a soccer game between uh, Bosnia and Serbia and Montenegro in 2004, which was a friendly soccer game. And at the beginning of that soccer game, they played national anthems. And Serbian national anthem, or the national anthem of Serbia and Montenegro at the time, was the same as the national anthem of Yugoslavia, Hey Slovenia. Mm. And as it was played, the entire stadium started to boo and turn their backs to the to, to the field. Hmm. And though that same crowd, only you know, 14 years later, would stand in that same stadium and have those same feelings that people in the state in the United States would have when they hear a Star Spangled Banner. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's a very, very powerful sense of patriotism and you know identity being anchored into that symbol, which is which was which is the anthem. Is it kind of like you know, let's say 10 years ago, you might have asked a run-of-the-mill a run-of-the-mill Republican would be able to recite narratives about xenophobia, even though they don't really agree with them. But something happened uh, that sort of lit a fuse, uh, the emotional charge underlying the argument. And you're saying sort of people put it to the forefront, not because they logically adduced it, to be a a better way of thinking, but rather these thoughts and ideas got infused with a fervor or infused with an emotional energy. Is that what you're sort of getting at? Yes. This is why the stories from World War II are so important and so powerful. The national parties, or SDS to be specific, prior to the 1990 elections, which they ended up winning along with the two other national parties, during the campaign, they created performances out of excavation of pits of people who were murdered in World War II. Yeah. So after World War II, the many people of all ethnic backgrounds who were murdered would be uh, who were murdered by being thrown into deep natural pits. The communist regime would pour concrete over them and cover it up and have a generic name for them, the victims of fascist terror. So there was no indicator about ethnicity of the victims or the ethnicity of the perpetrators. So Mm. in 1990, they started opening up these pits and reburying them, creating these large ceremonies that would be attended by, you know, by church officials, by leading politicians, and create new monuments that would tell, okay, these were Serbs killed by Croat, Ustasha, fascists. And... During the ceremonies, you can imagine how you can imagine the visceral experience when you see skulls being laid out. That can be mm-hmm. graphic. Yeah. Skulls being laid out with a point of impact being mm. visible, or children's bones being tied together with a wire. Yeah. And all this happening at a time when there was a new Croatian government that they labeled to be the return of the Ustashe. So the point of these ceremonies was, the message was, if you don't unite behind our party, behind your own Serb party, 
you may suffer the same fate as these people that we have just excavated from the pits. Hmm. Do you see any parallels between sort of this right, uh, you know, this right wing sort of nationalism that's sweeping Europe and North America and what you saw uh, during the war? Or is it really so mild as to be not comparable? Well, there are some parallels that can be made for sure. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. the, the terrorist threat being, you know, blown out of their own, blown out of proportions, mm-hmm. uh, being used to blanket entire categories. Mm-hmm. being categories of people in the sense that, you know, it's very similar to, in that regard, to the process that happened here. Hmm. There were very specific people who were doing the murders here. Mm-hmm. There are also very specific people who were doing terrorist attacks throughout the world. Hmm. Yet, the peril that I'm seeing is that categorical interpretation in which, no, it's not just those people, but it's the entire ethnicity that bears collective responsibility. Or mm-hmm. it's not just those specific radicals, but it is an entire religion and we will not allow people from this and that country to come. Yeah. All these millions of people to, to, to visit us or to, to enter our country. You know, though, I, I remember Donald Trump's famous speech about they're sending us their murderers, they're sending us their rapists. And some, I assume, are good people. I'm sure it got play out in Sarajevo, these these speeches. And I remember people's first reaction was people recognized it as such, as a blanket generalization. But just after being hammered with it over and over again, people's ears sort of close up and it just becomes normalized. Is that Was that sort of how it worked on the ground there too? Like you just kept on hearing the nationalist drumbeat and eventually you go deaf to it over several years. These processes, which really picked up in 1990 in Bosnia and that erupted in war in April of 1992, so these two two and some year long processes would begin at a time in a context in which being labeled a nationalist was something Hmm. almost profane. Hmm. It had a very deeply negative connotation in the Bosnian context in the Bosnian society. Hmm. And by 1992, being a nationalist was something that was... Yeah, just another political option. It was something that was much more acceptable. So there is that element of repetition, and where there's repetition, obviously there is there is adjustment. Mm. And when there is adjustment, then you know these ideas are no longer and no no longer new. They are no longer novel. Mm. So there was an element of that. But even with that, when the war broke out in 1992. There and violence and the murders and the actual events in which people were killed, women, children, it created a whole new level of an emotional intensity, Hmm. a whole new intensity, if you will. And that level was allowed for what can be called dehumanization. Hmm. I think Aliza, in prelude to this conversation, mentioned that she wanted to talk about dehumanization. I would say Mm -hmm. that prior to the eruption of the war, you you can't find... uh, a whole lot of evidence for that. You have, you have a discourse that emphasizes that the nation is under threat from a very dangerous and very formidable opponent. Mm-hmm. So it's not exactly someone who is less than a human. Mm-hmm. But once violence started to happen, dehumanization really started to grow large as one of the themes. And we had in 1993, one of the leaders of SDS, Biljana Plavšić, who was a biologist, making a statement that Bosnian Muslims were descendants of Serbs, but of a degenerative Serb gene. Uh. As something that she had never said 
prior to the war. Mm. You have, on a regular basis, the labeling of Muslims as Turks. Again, something that leading Serb politicians would not say prior to the war. Actually, prior mm. to the war, there were times, there were periods in which they called Muslims as good neighbors. So it's this emotional intensity, this horrible, horrible context in which what you define as a crime starts to shift. <laughs> something that was not permissible at one point now becomes all of a sudden permissible. Mm that allowed for this type of language to be used. But this language did not produce. This was a language that was used to legitimize atrocities. So it did not, did not produce conflict itself. What's it like in Bosnia today? Like, how are things now? Yeah, well, Bosnia is a deeply divided society still today. And there are no signs that this will change in any near, in any near term. Bosnia is now organized as a union of two entities, one is Republika Srpska, Serb majority area, and the other one is the Federation of Bosnia Herzegovina, in which uh, Bosniaks and Croats were the majority of the population. Mm. And we now have the reverse of von Klausowitz's statement of continuation of politics with other means. We now mm. have the continuation of war with political mm. means, more peaceful means. That, what do I mean by this? We, I mean that those wartime fantasies, that wartime agenda never went away. Mm. Now it is being advocated through discourse, through the way, through political discourse, right. through the way people talk about this state, the Bosnian state, and what they want to achieve in the future. Republika Srpska, the, the, their leaders keep talking about independence of Republika Srpska, something they were not able to achieve in the war. And people in the Federation, Bosniaks and pro-Bosnian parties, are hoping that one day we will have Bosnia without entities. So that, will, mm. that, that means that Republika Srpska would be abolished. So here we have the continuation of wartime fantasies, but which, which is very important from the standpoint of the Bosnian economy and the rampant corruption that is affecting the daily lives of citizens because the more politicians continue, the more political elites keep talking about these issues, there is less room and there's less attention to those issues that are affecting the daily lives of Bosnians, and there are many of them. Before we go, are you on uh, social media? Are you on Twitter at all? Can anybody, do you have a blog? Is there anything, if people are interested in looking you up, how can they follow you? I'm on Facebook, but I'm uh -huh. planning to open up a, a blog pretty soon, so hopefully they'll be, they'll be able to reach me that way. All right, that was Adis Maksic from International Birch University in Sarajevo. His recent book is Ethnic Mobilization, Violence, and the Politics of Affect, the Serb Democratic Party, and the Bosnian War with Palgrave Macmillan. Uh, we also had earlier in the program, Aliza Luft, Assistant Professor of Sociology at UCLA. She does some fantastic work on genocide. Thank you so much for joining us today, Adis. Thank you very much, Joe. It was fun. You've been listening to The Annex, a sociology podcast. A special thank you to Elisa Luft of UCLA and Adis Maxit of International Birch University in Sarajevo. Adis's book is Ethnic Mobilization, Violence and the Politics of Affect, the Serb Democratic Party and the Bosnian War with Palgrave Macmillan. We're on the web, sociocast.org slash annex. 
on Twitter at Socianix and on Facebook, the Annex Sociology Podcast. Our producer is Liseth Moreno. Music by Lena Orsa. I'm Joe Cohen. Thanks for listening.